Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable, high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by Josh Steger, Policy Director for Free Press. Josh and I discussed the FCC's recent vote to start a rulemaking proceeding on safeguarding and securing the open internet, which would reinstate Title II authority over broadband providers and restore net neutrality rules. We talk about why Free Press is in favor of restoring Title II, why it matters for closing the digital divide, and we dissect some of the arguments coming from the industry opposing the open internet order. Josh, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure, of course. So um, just for a quick level set here, as everyone likely knows, if they're listening to this, the FCC voted last week to open a notice of notice of proposed rulemaking to restore open internet rules that would reclassify broadband providers as Title II companies and reinstate net neutrality rules. Um, again, for very brief background, the FCC passed an open internet order during the Obama administration. It was repealed during the Trump administration. It's now back under the Biden administration and comments on the FCC's latest proposal are due in mid-December and a final vote on the matter is expected sometime next year. So, of course, Free Press uh, has been a huge champion of making this proceeding happen. So I want to talk to you a bit today about your support for restoring open internet, the open internet open internet order. It's a little hard to say, especially with my very fast uh, Queen's accent, and as well as about some of the arguments against uh, this proceeding that we're already hearing from the industry. Um, so just to start, broadly speaking, um, what's your reaction to last week's vote to move forward with this proceeding? And why is restoring Title II and net neutrality important for closing the digital divide? Uh, thanks. Yeah, I, I mean, the initial reaction was finally. Um, we've been waiting for this for for quite some time. Um, you know, it was the Chairman Rosenwurzel was you know very clear um, in her confirmation hearing two years ago uh, that this was a priority. Uh, that you know she very clearly believed that this was something that the commission both should be doing and has the authority to do. Uh, President Biden called for this um, in his reelect in his campaign in 2020, uh, and it was part of the Democratic Party platform. He also called for it again uh, in an executive order on competition that was released over two years ago. So this is, you know, obviously something that many people have both been expecting and, and waiting for. Um, of course, I think the one unexpected thing was just how long it would take us to get a fully functional. Uh, FCC with five commissioners, uh, with Anna Gomez's confirmation a little over a month ago uh, and her being sworn in, that finally you know set the stage for this. And uh, I commend Chairman Rosenmertzel for moving truly as quickly as possible. I think um, once she got that full commission in place within 24 hours of Commissioner Gomez being sworn in, uh, Rosenwurzel gave the speech announcing that she would be moving forward on this proceeding. So you know, here we are. It's it's. It has been moving quickly now over the past few weeks after a very, very long <laughs> period of waiting. Yeah, absolutely. It went from uh, zero to 100 pretty much. Um, so, uh, you know, before we get into some of the arguments the industry is making, um, you know, we do have net neutrality rules in a few states at this point. Uh, is there anything that we've learned from states like California that have passed net neutrality um, that, you know, maybe prove its its importance? Sure. Well, I think the first thing that we learned, um, you know, with, with California being, I think, the, the gold standard here in terms of both net neutrality protections at large, but also what a state law um, should look like, 
is again, that the industry is going to fight this uh, tooth and nail no matter what. So we actually, even though California passed this law in 2018, we had several years of fighting and, and litigation, uh, both industry-led lawsuits, the, the Department of Justice backed them up under the Trump DOJ. That took a while for the Biden administration to, to drop that uh, in 2021. So we didn't even actually have the California law fully and clearly in place uh, until about 18 months ago. So, you know, the, the mere, I think, existence of that law had a deterrent effect um, on ISPs and any potential abuses. So that's great. Uh, but we haven't had a whole lot of time to see what enforcement looks like and what it looks like without that law being challenged. But the, the mere existence of it uh, has been critically important. Right. Okay. So let's talk about some of the, the industry pushback that you, you refer to. Um, let's actually start with... Uh, not an industry person, but a friend, I would say, at this moment, Commissioner Brendan Carr, one of two Republicans on on the commission, uh, came out with a lengthy dissent uh, last week ahead of the vote. Um, I'm just going to read you one quote from his dissent, um, and we'll talk about a couple aspects of it. So from Commissioner Carr's dissent, uh, since the FCC's 2017 decision to return the internet to the same successful and bipartisan regulatory framework under which it thrived for decades, broadband speeds in the U.S have increased, prices are down, competition has intensified, and record-breaking new broadband builds have brought millions of Americans across the digital divide. So would you say that's an accurate assessment of the broadband landscape in the U.S.? And specifically, let's take broadband speeds and prices. Are speeds up and are prices down? Sure. So I think, you know, it's it's not fair to say that that would be an accurate assessment of the marketplace. Uh, one of the biggest problems there is just what are his sources? Uh, we don't actually have robust data on this. And this is something that we have been fighting to get the federal government to collect accurate data on this for over a decade, particularly on pricing. Uh, and we still don't have it. The infrastructure law that was passed two years ago made some important progress there, uh, requiring a broadband nutrition label and some pricing data collection for the Affordable Connectivity Program. Both of those things are still not in place. Um, again, because of industry pushback, we've seen when it comes to getting transparent data on pricing, the ISPs do not want to disclose this information. Um, and they definitely don't want any legal obligations, even soft obligations, as I would call the, the nutrition label that um, is forthcoming. So, you know, we I don't want to just have a he said, she said on different data sources, right? But that is sort of what we're, we were left with. Consumer Reports has done some recent uh, investigating on this by just collecting bills uh, from some of, of their readership. Um, that certainly challenges uh, Commissioner Carr's interpretation, as well as on speeds. This is something that has been fought, you know, aggressively uh, for many years in the Measuring Broadband America program. Um, and there certainly are a lot of platforms that do speed measurement, um, although most of them are pretty opaque and not transparent um, in how they collect that information um, and can be funded. For example, uh, Comcast is a big uh, contributor towards one of the biggest speed measurement platforms. And then there's uh, platforms like Measurement Lab that are open source that tend to show a different story. So there's, I, I wish we had, you know, a very simple, direct answer on that point to say, yep, speeds have gone up, prices have gone down. I wish that was the case. Uh, but we don't even have uh, the regulatory regime to assess that. And so what we end up relying on is a lot of self-reported data from the ISPs, which, you know, is just 
obviously inherently conflicted. Uh, I think one of the things that I look at most, though, is the then consumer complaints and what consumers think you know their service is like. And the annual consumer surveys that come out routinely show that consumers dislike uh, their ISP more than just about any other company in America. Uh, mm -hmm. It's lower than the health insurers, lower than the airlines, you know, industries that, of course, Americans love to complain about. Um, it is rock bottom on, on every consumer survey. Consumers do not feel like they are getting what they are paying for. And importantly, they don't even have the ability to really know for sure, is that the case? Uh, the 45-day the network outage in Hope Village that Sharon Rosenwurzel recently referenced back in 2020 is a great example of this, of where consumers were left for six weeks in this neighborhood in Detroit without service and without a, a an agency that was meaningfully able to respond to that sort of issue. So I think when we have a marketplace that is both uh, down to just a handful of, of dominant providers, what we would call an oligopoly in, in antitrust terms, and where you have you know large communities in our country in the middle of a pandemic left without service, uh, that does not say good things about the, the health of the broadband market. Okay, so let's go to another argument that's emerging um, that the industry is making, uh, that a return to Title II classification will hamper investment in broadband networks. How do you respond to that? And what does the evidence show about if and how Title II was impacted, um, uh, if and how Title II did impact the industry's investment when we had it for a brief minute? Sure. This is something that Free Press has, you know, done a lot of research on over the years, and it was pretty clear that uh, both Title II in those few years that we had it did not undermine investment, but that the repeal of it also did not unleash some sort of wave. Um, it's, there's sort of a disconnect, I think, between that talking point within the Beltway and how these companies actually operate outside the Beltway. Uh, they're not really making their decisions uh, these sort of, which are, you know, operating on two to five year timeframes on the basis of any sort of regulatory regime. Um, and we've seen that pretty consistently over the past decade um, of investment. So it's, I would say it's, it's probably fair to say that it has, you know, no impact on it, um, but certainly not accurate to, to suggest that Title II somehow dramatically undermines uh, the investment in these networks or, you know, in any meaningful way impacts the decisions that these big broadband providers are making on where they spend their money. Yeah. Um, plus they're about to get, you know, tens of billions of dollars from the government to build the network. So I don't think they're Absolutely. just going to say, no, we don't want to. Um, <laughs> so uh, you mentioned this uh, with regard to Hope Village, but uh, another, um, Maybe this actually, maybe that's not a good example. Uh, but another argument the industry is making is that there is no evidence of blocking or throttling. Um, and so we don't actually need net neutrality. Um, can you cite any examples where telecom companies have actually blocked or throttled content um, since the repeal? So here too, you know, it's 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 difficult because we haven't had a federal regulator able to investigate these sorts of claims. Uh, yeah. There's also been the regulatory overhang of state protection. So you know, I think that quite a few ISPs have tried to be on some of their best behavior. Nonetheless, we do still have hints here and there, you know, of what they've wanted to do over the years. So of course, in 2018, there was a fairly high profile example of firefighters from Santa Clara County that experienced uh, throttled service 
while fighting what was then the largest wildfire in California state history and the Verizon service just went offline in the middle of fighting that fire. So there, you know, we never got a meaningful investigation of that issue because that FCC had just abdicated Title II authority and repealed the net neutrality rules. We were in a an unusual example there where the firefighters and the first responders who were directly impacted were from a very both affluent county and one that was perhaps more connected and attuned to this issue than maybe any other county in the, in the United States. Santa Clara, you know, is of course where Silicon Valley is located. Um, so even when they did not have recourse at a federal agency, when this throttling happened, that county was able to go to the media and at least get some public attention. And that caused, you know, their service to be restored, um, but which was, you know, good for them, but certainly not the answer that we want, right? Uh, what happens to all of the other localities that don't have those kinds of resources and that get that kind of attention? Um, you know, we really needed a federal authority there to both investigate and figure out exactly what happened there. Um, you know, we had AT&T uh, trying to preference HBO Max during its rollout a few years ago, back when AT&T still owned uh, that property. Um, and, you know, which certainly would have been the sort of thing we would have expected uh, the, the FCC to investigate had it still had the net neutrality rules in place. So, you know, we're seeing examples of this even when they were on their best behavior under the threat of litigation, under the threat of state lawmaking, and even without any meaningful federal investigation uh, of these issues. Yeah. And, you know, Commissioner Carr, I think, spoke to that particular example and said it had more to do with a data plan or something. But to your point, it sounds like there wasn't actually a meaningful investigation. So we don't we don't really know how this ended up because the FCC doesn't have the authority to uh, meaningfully investigate it. Is that is that correct? Exactly. Okay. And it's it's also, you know, it's interesting to every time we hear then, you know, the argument uh, from industry that, you know, they don't have any interest in blocking throttling or paid prioritization. If that's the case, then what's the harm in having some federal rules that just prohibit that conduct if they're, you know, not interested in pursuing it generally? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good point. I think it's also notable that uh, a multi-year pandemic followed shortly, you know, not too long after the repeal of these rules. So uh, where companies had to keep people connected, uh, not necessarily by law, but uh, to, to not be a publicly bad company. Um, we don't know how anyone would have acted had we not uh, all had to go home and be on the internet for, for the last few years. Um, it could have been a different set of circumstances. Absolutely. I mean, obviously the pandemic was a, a watershed moment I mean, for so many, so many things, but especially connectivity. And even with that, it's interesting that in those early months of the pandemic, uh, the FCC had a sort of voluntary promise from certain ISPs to not disconnect people for inability to pay. And yeah. it took actually a reporter filing FOIA requests to uncover that during those months, the FCC was receiving a lot of consumer complaints on exactly this point, saying they were being disconnected, that ISPs were not living up to this totally voluntary promise that had, you know, toothless enforcement authority by the FCC. And the FCC both, you know, did not investigate those complaints, um, but it, it buried them. Um, and didn't even make them public. So again, it's like, why do we have to rely on the media? Why do we have to rely on FOIA requests yeah. just to get this basic accountability in place? Yeah. 
Okay, so uh, this proceeding leans into the need for Title II for national security purposes, um, but uh, and and public safety. But opponents, including Commissioner Carr, say the FCC has the authority it needs to address various public safety and national security issues. Can you speak to that aspect of this argument at all? Do you think um, those are uh, good rationalizations for for the new proceeding? Absolutely. I think it's, a, it's an even more salient uh, rationale than, you know, six years ago when we last had this proceeding at the FCC. And, you know, it, it's, it's kind of amazing just in the last six years how many examples we have had on this front. So uh, when the D.C. Circuit, you know, ruled on the repeal of the net neutrality rules back in 2019, you know, they used the word unhinged, that the decision was unhinged, which has always stuck with me because it's not a term you usually hear federal judges use, let alone put in writing in a decision. Right. Uh, but that's how they described uh, the repeal of Title II here. And they specifically zeroed in on public safety as an issue in which the, the repeal was uh, really misguided and actually remanded uh, back to the commission um, on this issue, on this, on this point, the public safety point. So, you know, when you're talking about first responders, when you're talking about, we had, you know, the hurricanes in Puerto Rico, for example, and the, the devastating impact that has had. Um, it's the and the examples around how first responders rely on broadband networks has only you know with each passing year increased. And of course, then we had the pandemic, where there you know there has been even research showing that broadband connectivity is correlated to some of the neighborhoods you know where in communities uh, where COVID hit the hardest because without reliable connectivity, people were not able to safely socially distance, and that may have contributed to the more rapid spread of the virus. I mean, these are just all of these are things that I don't think were on a lot of people's radar back in 2017, certainly not things we were putting in the, the docket. Um, but it's with just each passing year, it's just become amazing to see how much more um, interconnect, internet connection matters to so many public safety examples. And the climate crisis, for example, is just is really sort of spiraling um, with each year. And, you know, that that firefighter example I referenced back in 2018, that broke records, that fire that they were fighting as the largest in California state history. In the five years since, that record has been broken multiple times in that state. So um, it's really, really important, you know, that we, you know, restore these rules and restore this authority for all sorts of reasons. But public safety is, is very much front and center. And I commend uh, Chairman Rosenwurzel for recognizing that and, and putting that front and center, both responding to what the D.C. Circuit said was a critical flaw uh, in repealing the net neutrality rules, but also just what reality has shown us over the past six years. I think that's exactly what we should be talking about right now. All right. So one more uh, point for you to refute. This is really about, uh, this is more uh, about how uh, regulatory matters work, but um, the courts have obviously changed a bit. Uh, and Commissioner Carr, for example, cited a study from former lawyers for President Obama asserting that restoring Title II won't survive a court challenge. Now, it's important to note that that study was funded by U.S. Telecom and you know, not friends of Title II regulations. Um, so how are you viewing the issue of a likely court challenge here, uh, despite, you know, regardless of who's funding whatever research? Right. So, I mean, that was obviously a disappointing white paper to see um, from those former Obama officials 
clearly bought and paid for. Um, you know, it's, 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 I don't think that's honestly anything that, you know, a solicitor general would do uh, prejudging before there was even an MPRM to look at, let alone an actual order. It's, it's kind of absurd at this point to say exactly how any court's going to rule, um, particularly on something that was purely hypothetical uh, when it was written. Um, look, the Supreme Court is obviously not a friend to consumer protection right now um, and a whole manner of issues. It's, it's, it's not great. <laughs> and, you know, lots of people are looking carefully at what happens to Chevron deference, for example, um, in this upcoming term. However, it's been pretty clear on this issue that the FCC does have very clear authority here. We have a lot of different federal court rulings rather than look at some hypothetical future ruling all we need to do is look at the pretty robust case law we have on this issue already, going back to 2005 when the Supreme Court ruled in Brand X um, that it was pretty clear that this is something that the FCC gets to do. And even there, we had, you know, Antonin Scalia saying, actually, <laughs> this should be a Title II service. Obviously, it's telecommunication service. So going back the better part of two decades, we've got a lot of good case law on this point that is separate and apart from some of the more novel and recent uh, case law emerging around things like the major questions doctrine. So okay. it's it's not something that, you know, I think anyone who tells you this is exactly how the court's going to rule, whether it's in favor or against what the FCC wants to do here, I think is not being honest with you. Um, no one can say for sure, but I think we've got pretty good case law on our side. And in terms of what this, you know, major questions doctrine says, you know, I, I think they call it a doctrine, but that's kind of a uh, dress up. I mean, this is, this is really just kind of saying, look, we have a lot of corporatist judges on the bench now and including at the Supreme court. So don't even try to do anything uh, pro regulatory and pro consumer, because we can just undo it. And I just don't think that's an answer that any regulatory agency uh, should accept. You know, we're, we're prepared for industry to sue over this. And, you know, we've, we've got a lot of, of good legal arguments on our side, but um, yeah. this doctrine and, you know, these sort of bought and paid for white papers, I don't think should deter the FCC. And so far it has not. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it will go to the courts, of course. That's that's just what we do. That's how, how, it roll, how we roll here. But I will just as one final thing, you know, the, the, by the time the FCC votes on this, it, we're going to be a few months away from a presidential election. Um, given the re who knows what happens in that election. But at some point, there will be a Republican chair of the FCC again, and that person is likely to overturn this. Um, what's the long-term solution to this problem? You know, the industry likes to say they want Congress to deal with this, but I think that's just a kicking the can, kicking the can down the road uh, from their perspective, um, especially right now, <laughs> asking Congress to deal with anything. Uh, what What's from your, your perspective, from Free Press's perspective, what is the long-term solution for this problem? You know, it's it starts with just, first of all, not accepting that it's a foregone conclusion that this just, you know, ping-pongs back and forth <laughs> that, you know, the next Republican chair, whenever that happens, will just, of course, repeal this. Um, I don't, I think it needs to just be settled law. And that's really where we were at uh, in 2016, when we got that very clear DC circuit ruling, the only time that the, that the DC circuit has ever completely upheld an FCC approach to net neutrality was with that 2015 open internet order. Mm -hmm. uh, we really had it settled and we're looking forward to just 
turning the page on this. Um, and then, of course, the, the Trump FCC came in with that unhinged decision that we are trying to undo and restore, you know, some some sanity uh, to this yeah. process. So, yes, you know, we're a year away from election. Who knows what's going to happen in, in 2025? Um, but I think whether you talk about this being settled at the FCC or in Congress, either way, you know, it just it needs to it's a political question. And it's been frustrating here because it's really the issue is not something that has you know a lot of nuanced different sides it's really just the industry that the biggest isps and its proxies so not even smaller competitive isps plenty of them were very much in favor of the open internet order and on record as as doing so Um, it's really just those biggest isps and their proxies on one side and then literally everyone else on the other. Um, so, and you saw that, I mean, there's overwhelming political support for strong net neutrality rules um, from voters across the parties. You know, this is again, going back to those consumer surveys, perhaps one of the few things that still unites voters of all stripes is they really don't like their ISP and they really want to see some accountability there. They feel like they're being ripped off. Um, and I think that undergirds a lot of the political support for net neutrality. Um, so I think there just seems to be a recognition that this is where the country is at. Uh, this is where the courts are at. This is settled law. Um, you know, I think people talk about perhaps Congress passing a law and, hey, that'd be great. But we've been talking about they've had an opportunity to do that for, for literally decades now. And we haven't seen any legislation emerge. We even had a very strong Republican bill come out in 2018 from then Congressman Mike Kaufman um, that I think a lot of net neutrality supporters could have gotten on board with and Democrats. But the rest of the party killed it, and Mike Kaufman lost re-election soon thereafter. <laughs> so it, it's it's not like Congress would be the final word on this any more than the SEC right. could. Uh, right. They could always repeal their laws or you know strip them away. There's, there's this is not some magic solution. Um, yeah. You know, always welcome a strong law from Congress. But that said, Congress did provide strong protections for this. It's called the 1996 Telecommunications Act. And that is what the FCC is using here um, and had pretty clear authority uh, to to enact these protections. So, you know, I I don't really think, I think that's sort of a a distraction argument. Um, Either way, wherever it comes from, we do just need to see this be the recognition that this is settled law. And the fact that it does keep coming back, even when industry tries to repeal it, either through the agency or the courts, and yet there is still very strong political support um, from the public to get them back shows that this issue just isn't going away. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm sure you're going to be very busy with this. Uh, so thank you so much for your time and for your work on this issue. I appreciate appreciate uh, you taking some time to talk with us. Of course. Thanks. Thank you again, Josh, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landrio, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.